Welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights here at the University of Cambridge. My name is Scott Novak, and I'll be your host on today's show. On this episode of Declarations, we looked at the refugee crisis and what it means for human rights. Why are we funding fences around Calais? Why are we not helping those unaccompanied children? I, I, I met a 12-year-old Afghani kid who was looking for two boots of the same size so he wouldn't go cold for the winter. What challenges face host countries when refugee communities settle there? Can we really separate economic migrants from persecuted refugees? There's a massive fear of the other, massive fear that if we integrate them into our systems, our formal economy, our healthcare, etc., which is non-existent, but that's a different issue, then they will, they, they might never leave, and they will upset the confessional balance of the country. This episode, we'll talk to Cambridge students Dima Krayam, who's doing a PhD in development studies, and Stefan Thiel, who's doing a PhD in law, about their work on the refugee crisis. Hi, thanks for having us. Hello, thanks for having us. I was also joined in our recording studio with Matt Mamoudi, a fellow CGHR panelist. I'd like to start off with a question to all three of you, actually. So why are you all so interested in the refugee crisis? Ladies first. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So with regards to the Syrian crisis, I'm actually not driven by interest in such a way that a scientist would be interested in looking at the origin of atoms, for example but rather I'm driven by shame. Shame that in Syria you have one of the most brutal wars in history with over 500,000 casualties and documented use of internationally prohibited chemical weapons and the largest mass exodus of refugees into neighboring countries since World War II. And yet the world has managed to remain largely silent and apathetic. Five years into the war, calling for ending the atrocities in Syria, the barrel bombings, the sieges, the airstrikes, are all seen as populist arguments to the conflict and are deemed naive at best. Just yesterday, um, there has been an onslaught of civilians that were asked to leave eastern Aleppo by the regime by the re- regime and the Russian troops. And the massacre has been described, uh, has described the situation in Aleppo as a descent into hell. But the reality is that the world remains unfazed, and this is obvious humiliation for the UN, the powers of this world, and unfortunately, the Syrian people will never forget this. All this to say that as a student from the region, I feel that my only limited and arguably hopeless contribution to alleviating the Syrian people's struggle is through research and being outspoken about what's actually happening in Syria. You know, leading the privileged life of a Cambridge student, the least I can feel is duty towards drawing attention to the suffering and struggles of the Syrian people and the struggles of the vulnerable populations affected. So my primary research focuses on defining local integration for Syrian refugees in Lebanon as a lived reality rather than an internationally defined concept fitting all realities. And my hope is that this research will aid in working towards promoting livelihood opportunities, a chance at a dignified life for the million refugees in Lebanon, and also for the vulnerable and poor Lebanese host communities. Mm. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Dima, and for sharing your expertise with us. Um, I'm very excited to have this conversation with all of you. What about you, Stefan? 
Yeah, I'd like to pick up on that theme a little bit. I mean, uh, responsibility is also a strong driver for me, but it took me, so I have to put a huge disclaimer here first. I don't actually research um, refugee law at all. So what I'm doing is I, uh, with a couple of friends, we got together in October 2015, and we um, were thinking in very broad terms about what the role of university is within the larger society. What responsibility does the university have in addressing the refugee crisis? And that was October 2015, as many of you remember, the refugee stream heading towards Europe kind of reached a, a big peak point at that time, especially along the Balkan route. And there was a humanitarian crisis unfolding there. And the talk was all over the what do we do about this? And we all have this image in our head of um, the refugees being greeted at Munich train station, the police officers, everything, everything being very welcoming and very warm. Of course, times have changed since then. But um, so what came out of this whole backdrop against this backdrop, we kind of came up with the idea of having a refugee scholarship. So if the role of the youth society in general is, is to welcome these people to offer them some help and assistance in the times of need, then the role of the university surely must be to, in some way, safeguard the academic life of um, the people who are kind of fleeing those countries or who are forced to flee their countries. And so we thought, well, what better way than to help a student, actually a refugee student, have a place in Cambridge to study here and so we started fundraising and um, a couple of months later now we're standing at around 12,000 pounds raised. So it seems like next Michaelmas we'll be able to actually host a refugee student in Cambridge through our efforts. Wow. Well, that that's wonderful to hear. Um, and Matt, what about yourself? Because you have some background on these issues as well. I'm sort of approaching this whole debate from an identity perspective. Um, my parents and my father was a refugee um, after the revolution changed in Iran in 1979 and came to Denmark. And so that that at the time sparked a debate in Denmark because uh, it's a largely homogenous society. And yeah. so the presence of foreigners uh, was just not a, a very common concept as such. And so growing up, you notice these labels being thrown around like refugee and second generation immigrant. And what these labels do usually is yeah. that they... They rob people's identities. Uh, they rob people from being able to express the potential that they might have because of the fact that they were labeled a certain way and by that notion, by the very logic, by the very narrative that was being used against them, excluded from the rest of society. And so I'm attacking this debate from the perspective of how can we change the narrative surrounding refugees and what sort of positive outcomes could a change in narrative have on integration? I also recently went to the camps in Calais in January 2016. And another interesting sort of question that emerged there was uh, how we are perceiving the refugees coming in as also activists and volunteers. Because what you notice a lot in the camps is that volunteers walk around talking to refugees and they're faced with the hello, how are you? And like the casual sort of positive, um, very energetic attitude. And look at these refugees building a church here from, you know, cardboard and such. And there's a lot of romanticism. But then when you speak to refugees in their own language, you'll notice that what they'll stress is that they don't want volunteers coming out and giving them food and secondhand clothing. They all had status and lives before what they want is for volunteers to go back home and put pressure on their governments to actually do something about the existence of, of Calais. So it's twofold, really. On the one hand, there's identity. And on the other hand, it's opening up our eyes and, and realizing we're not necessarily engaging in the right practices for alleviating this issue. Mm, absolutely. So we've talked about so far in each of your backgrounds that there is this crisis of refugee mass movements of people fleeing 
their countries in search of a better life, as safer places to live. And I want to talk about, which Dima started to touch on in your introduction, about how did we get to the stage where we are in the first place. Dima, can you give us a short overview of what's been going on in Syria these past five years? So five years ago, you had massive peaceful demonstrations, and here I stress on peaceful, that broke out in uh, rural areas in Syria and spread out eventually to major cities in the country as part of the Arab Spring wave of uprisings. And the Syrian people were protesting against a deeply oppressive but also patriarchal regime and were calling for reforms that would alleviate their abysmal socioeconomic conditions that were largely driven by failed neoliberal policies in the decade that preceded the uprisings, the increasing poverty rates, four decades of oppression, amongst other socioeconomic factors. Right from the beginning, the demonstrators were met with brutality and repression from the Syrian regime that immediately deployed military power, missiles, battle bombs, airstrikes, etc., And that's because the regime could not afford a compromise uh, in Syria. It couldn't afford the fate similar to Mubarak in Egypt or uh, Qazafi in uh, Libya. So repression and the use of military power created a cycle of violence. And five years on what started as peaceful demonstrations has led to a brutal proxy global war. As a result, you have half of Syria's pre-crisis population displaced, with over 4.8 million registered refugees in neighboring countries, close to 8 million internally displaced within Syria, and around 1 million seeking asylum in Europe. Turkey hosts close to 2 million refugees. Lebanon, where I'm from, hosts over a million refugees, which uh, constitute close to 23% of Lebanon's population. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is... Uh, one of the highest figures in history. Jordan hosts a little under 700,000 refugees, close to 10% of its population is made up of refugees. And what I want to stress on here is that none of those neighboring countries, Iraq, Egypt, Jordan, or Lebanon, are signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention. Their open-door policy was never a legal responsibility. It was rather a normal reaction to war in a neighboring country. Things have changed five years on. Those countries have struggled to cope with the crisis. Can you explain what is the refugee convention that these countries haven't signed on to, but other countries have? What does that mandate you to do if you've been a signatory? Sure. So if you're signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention, basically anyone that applies for asylum in your country has rights, has legal rights, protection rights, etc. So anyone fearing persecution can reach a country that is signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention and apply for asylum. They are asylum seekers until their asylum application is accepted. That's when they become a refugee. As a refugee, you have certain protection rights, education benefits, health benefits, etc. And in many cases, this leads to naturalization and citizenship. Now, in the region, those countries are not signatory to the Refugee Convention, largely because of their history, and more specifically with their history with regards to the Palestinian refugees. So Lebanon hosts 400,000 refugees from Palestine that, that fled after 1948, and they've been heavily camped and heavily marginalized. And Syria as well. Syria 
prior to the uprisings, hosted one million Palestinian refugees. I think you're bringing up some really important points, and that's the neighboring countries around Syria have taken in the vast majority of these refugees, these people fleeing from Syria. And that's something that you may hear about in passing in the Western media, but it's not something that many people are aware of. It's not something that's stressed. What's stressed far more, speaking in the UK, is the problem of the refugee crisis just for the UK, just for Germany. And it's mentioned in passing that, oh, yes, like Lebanon's had even more. But all the political focus and all the focuses of our political campaigns that we've seen of Brexit, especially Donald Trump's campaign as well back in the United States has been, oh, how is it affecting us here? And the United States especially, I think, is particularly an offender in this regard. And it's very difficult to become a refugee in the United States. I think it's like a two-year process, if I'm correct. It's an extremely intense vetting process. You don't just go to the United States and say you're a refugee. And I imagine it's similar for other Western countries as well. Does anyone else on our panel want to comment on that? I think this distinction that we're seeing emerging from what Dima said in in the region itself, I think it's very much a present economic crisis. I mean, there are tangible economic problems there with helping these people. Uh, In Europe, there are no tangible economic problems with helping these people. What we have in Europe is a something of an identity crisis and a generalized anxiety towards globalization and that hit on a very fruitful ground of already existing populist uh, movements who have now been and have now kind of found their their fighting words their topic you know the the thing that they're kind of getting people to actually get to get to the polls and to actually get the election uh, the votes out it's concerning on the one hand because Europe has the economic capabilities to take care of many more people. So just to give you some numbers here, Germany, for instance, even in the record year, quote unquote, that was 2015, only had about 476,000 asylum applications in that year. And yet people were talking about um, how this is overwhelming the social services, how this is overwhelming basically every section of society. And there were problems. There were administrative problems, for instance, in Germany. And there still are problems in the ways that European countries are reacting and dealing with this. But it's nothing that is beyond our resources and capabilities, what we're coming up against, and which is kind of scaring mainstream politicians at the moment on the left and on the right, is that there are movements out there who are saying this threatens our identity, globalization is a threat to us, you know, to our entire way of life, and these people can never be integrated. And kind of xenophobia mixes with general anxieties to form a very, very, very strange climate of fear and repression, which, yeah, we haven't seen in Europe for a very long time, I think. Yeah. And along with that point, it's not only the economic issues that have been talked about by these politicians who fear refugees or fear immigrants in general, not just refugees. And then they've also talked about people like Trump have said in relation to Mexico, in this case, not Syria, oh, they're bringing their worst here. Oh, these refugees or immigrants in general are seen as criminals by some of these political groups. When, at least in the United States, I've read studies that say immigrants in general are actually much less likely to commit crimes because if you do commit a crime and you're an immigrant, you risk being deported. Playing on that, there's also a a sort of narrative that emerges out of the whole like fear of terrorism and fear of what goes on in the Middle East, saying that uh, refugees and immigrants coming into the country bring with them terrorism, right? So that's a that's a form of crime. Um, but as it turns out, the first generation of immigrants and, and refugees are the ones that are least 
likely to engage in any sort of radical behavior because as it turns out they're in the process of figuring out how to integrate of figuring out how to fit into society of finding jobs there is much more of an effort there to to integrate as opposed to finding sort of identity crisis that would lead you in that direction whereas there have been some studies that have shown that actually it's the nefarious and often destructive behavior of the host country citizens towards the second generation of immigrants that would lead some into uh, becoming radicalized. Not being able to figure out whether you belong in the host country and at the same time knowing that you no longer belong to the original country of your parents, that puts you in sort of a conundrum of, oh, you know, well, where, where do I fit in then? And yeah, what should that's I do? a failing of the host country, right? right? I mean, because this is, I mean, speaking again from the European perspective, I mean, it's I know it's a tired narrative, but that's what I happen to know. The, the European perspective on this is very simple. We had a lot of immigration going on in a lot of Western European countries over decades since World War II. And we haven't really, for whatever reason, taken it seriously up until now. We've been very casual about it, saying, well, yeah, it's going to work out somehow. Let's just, you know, laissez-faire and it's going to be fine. And I think that's just, I mean, that attitude came back to bite us. And, and I think hopefully we're now going to do a better job at it because um, there are more people still coming. And this, I mean, this crisis as you've mentioned, it's far from over. This is still happening. Mm -hmm. Just because we have a deal with Turkey right now doesn't mean that people are not still going to try to come to Europe. I mean, this isn't over. And here I just want to stress on one thing, and I think the judgment for most migrants that are fleeing to Europe is based on the fact that they see Europe as the place of values, you know, a dignified life, protection of human rights, a decent chance at self-reliance and livelihood. And um, as Stefan said, I don't think migration is a new phenomenon anywhere in the world. It's been taking more prominence now and testing the European systems, but laws and values of the European Union as well, but it certainly is not a new phenomenon. I mean, Europe as a continent was an emigrant continent for, for a very long time. They exported their own citizens to European colonies. People fled Europe fearing persecution. This is certainly not new. Certainly. We've been calling this a crisis. What are the pros and cons of framing this issue as a crisis? Because I've heard it used from both sides, from the left and the right. The left saying, this is a crisis. We need to take this seriously. These people need our help. And then the right saying, those people, whoever those people happen to be, are coming and they're going to destroy our state, destroy our culture, take our jobs. I think it's very important that we're clear about what exactly is in crisis. I think we kind of touched upon this um but let's just expand it maybe. It's important to be very clear that it's a very different kind of crisis in the region itself uh, than it is in Europe, whereas the crisis in Europe is one, I would say, primarily of um, attitude and of globalization anxiety, where that's that's really where the crisis is coming from at the moment. Regionally, it's a really much, it comes down to very hard facts and economics. I mean, and that's in a way, calling it a crisis is good because it means that we're hopefully now finally going to take this seriously and we're going to bring the resources to bear that we have in order to make sure that we turn it into less of a global catastrophe than it is at the moment. But calling it a crisis and saying, you know, pull up the drawbridge and create Fortress Europe, I think that's the wrong answer. I mean, I think the word crisis is apt. I think it's correct. But we have to be very clear about what the crisis is focused on. It's not a crisis. It's not a cultural crisis. This isn't a cultural war or something that we're entering into. This is, yeah, of our values in Europe, at least. And regionally, it's something very different. Yeah, just to add to that, I think by all means in the region, it's definitely a crisis. And the best way to see that it is a crisis is through looking at the outcomes. I mean, the host countries, they're struggling to cope with the crisis given their originally weak systems. And those regional countries are already dealing with other aspects of 
the Syrian conflict. Like, for example, in Kurdistan that is hosting a large number of Syrian refugees, they're, they're dealing with internal displacement of other Iraqis into Kurdistan as well. So the response has been far from perfect, and it has highlighted the overstretched and inefficient country systems. And to shed light on the most pertinent factor and devastating outcome is if we look at the outcomes of the Syrian refugees in the region themselves. Um, They're living in abysmal conditions, limited, if any, access to the uh, formal labor market. They suffer from severely negative coping mechanisms, exploitation, documented racism, Last year, uh, close to 50% of school-aged Syrian refugee children in Lebanon were out of school. So five years into the crisis, we're not risking, but we're actually witnessing a lost generation of Syrians. One thing I want to add is that there are outcomes that are equally pertinent, but not quantifiable in such a crisis. Loss of dignity, for example. The need to reconstruct identity, uh, hope, and self-reliance, albeit after being completely dispossessed of uh, their homes and land in Syria. So it's quite devastating, to say the least. Mm Stefan, you mentioned that this is not the cultural crisis that some groups are making it out to be back in places like Europe and the United States. But how do you talk to those people who say, no, this is a cultural crisis. These people from Syria or Mexico or wherever, they have different values than my values. And obviously, there's some underlying racism there. But how do you talk to those people and convince them that this is something that we have a moral responsibility to do, that this is something that is just the human thing to do? How would you talk to those people who would disagree with you. It is very difficult, I have to admit, especially if you are committed to these views, it's very difficult to reach someone like that. I I think what most studies have shown and what most of the development of this crisis has shown so far is that people who have made up their mind are usually resistant to facts. So offering evidence in terms of statistical information and clearing up some misconceptions can be useful, but only for those people who aren't already committed to a certain view. I think that's where you're going to reach the center of the spectrum of opinion. You're going to reach them through information. As for the people who are committed to this, who are who think it is a cultural war and that they need to safeguard European identity or the Christian Judeo identity of Europe against um, supposed invasions, that's a lot more difficult. I think you need to start by talking to them at an emotional level, because I think hate always comes from fear to a point. So we need to try to understand what are the underlying fears? What are people actually afraid of? What is it in their in their lives right now that they are anxious about and that informs their hatred or their aversion towards uh, migration? What is it that they think they're going to lose through migration? Once you kind of understand what that is, you can kind of start talking to people on a more rational level, but you have to reach them emotionally first. If you're going to start chipping away at it by taking away some of the economic anxieties that are associated with globalization, take away some of the cultural anxieties that are associated with globalization. If you kind of start chipping away at this, you can reach these people at a at an emotional level and then kind of get into the facts and kind of feed them in. I think we can do a lot towards the economic in terms of alleviating any sort of stress regarding, oh, these people aren't going to rob you of your social mobility, especially because actually you've never met a single one of them because you're in a community that doesn't get exposed to those people. But also, on the other hand, there is the cultural factor, which I think is much more complex and difficult to sort of get to the root of, predominantly because usually the fears in terms of uh, refugees uh, affecting culture is the fear of cultural diffusionism into 
the nation that people in these communities already have. So people might have a very strong sense of what it means to be British, and they feel as though an even larger inflow of migrants who bring with them diffusion, new ideas and such, means that our idea, our idea of the British idea of ancient nation will go away. And that's something that I'm not sure how we're going to tackle. I think, I mean, you're right. I mean, your analysis is absolutely spot on. I mean, what people fear of cultural anxiety is that they feel that something that it is what it is to be them is kind of eroding. But I think being British, uh, being German, being French, that has nothing to do primarily with your heritage, with your ethnicity, or with anything else. I think primarily we have to reconceptualize our nation states as communities of value. So we we as a German, you buy into certain values, you buy into certain cultural quirks and you think or, you know, you have certain things to offer there. And that's what you buy into. And that's what makes you German. It's not your skin color. It's not where your parents came from or anything else. It's the fact that you buy into this value system. And I know that's still very tentative and I haven't been able to kind of fully flesh that out yet. But I think if we start reconceptualizing ourselves, not as communities of heritage or ethnicity or whatever it is, but as communities of values, then that is in principle something that anybody can buy into. Sure. The flip side to that, obviously, is, is that you as a community of value have to insist on certain values. Mm -hmm. So you have to say, buy into this value system. Mm -hmm. you, need to, you need to accept these values as we've laid them out. And I think a good starting point, if you don't have anything else, is to start with your constitution. I mean, that's where a lot of fundamental foundational values are already there. And you can say, well, if you're going to live in the States, for instance, or if you're going to live in Germany, you're buying into the principle of equality between man and woman. Mm -hmm. You're buying into um, religious freedom. You're buying into freedom of expression and all these other things. And that can be a very solid foundation for a value-based society, I think. Just mm -hmm. to add to that, in, in the region, I think the complications of integration have taken a different route. So for uh, Syrians in Lebanon, and particularly Lebanese government policy, what they're doing right now is addressing the permanence of having refugees. And Lebanon is a deeply confessional, uh, and what I mean by confessional is sectarian, coming from sects of religion, state. And so there's a massive fear of the other, massive fear that if we integrate them into our systems, our formal economy, our healthcare, etc., which is non-existent, but that's a different issue, then they will, they, they might never leave and they will upset the confessional balance of the country. So this is where, you know, a, a clear distinction between integration policies that promote self-reliance, agency, livelihood opportunities for refugees, and citizenship need, need, needs to be made. In the case of Lebanon, for example, I don't think the right way to go about devising policy for Syrian refugees is synonymously using integration with citizenship, but rather to completely distinguish those two concepts. I mean, has it driven a wedge in Lebanese society? Have you? I mean, do you observe that? Are people... Are they perceived as a threat? or Yes. I mean, host communities in general historically are very divided. And our identity as Lebanese, unfortunately, is very much related to our confessional belonging. So everyone from the different parts of the spectrum, you have activists that are calling for integration of Syrian refugees for access to livelihood opportunities. And you have the racist rhetoric that just wants to close down the border and so that divide is certainly evident in everyday life even. And there's also the host community fatigue in Lebanon because those vulnerable host communities have already been suffering from an absence of the state, of the state from you know, very limited access to public services, opportunities, etc. And now they are bearing the brunt of hosting 
a massive refugee population. So they misplace their anger that should be directed at the state towards an even more vulnerable community that's now living with them. I mean, is there a sense or is there anger towards the global community that hasn't really... I mean, the reality is very grim, right? So the global powers are no longer interested in putting an end to the war, which would be the ideal uh, scenario. But at the same time, they're not interested in sharing the burden nor are they adequately willing to fund the humanitarian crisis. I mean, donors are already suffering from aid fatigue, which is, alone is a very insulting term. And uh, humanitarian aid for the five years of the crisis has consistently been short of the needs. So, so in terms of the future of this crisis, Dima, you are not hopeful that it will be resolved anytime soon, or do you see that there is a potential answer in sight, but it's just unlikely that states would agree? I think there are two aspects to this question. So there's a political aspect. I'm not hopeful of any political resolution that will lead to peace in Syria anytime soon. I'm not hopeful that the global powers will rise to the responsibility of you know stopping the atrocities in Syria. That's what I'm not hopeful about. And especially with Trump now and his alleged uh, good ties with Russia. I mean, what type of political resolution can come out of this? I don't know. And what's the effect on the 5 million refugees in the neighboring countries? I also don't. I'm, I'm not very hopeful, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that we should not stop advocating for more just policies in neighboring countries or stop advocating for better integration policies and access to labor markets. Because for refugees, the life they're leading right now is highly unsustainable. And this cannot go on the way it is right now in neighboring countries. And, you know, I could go on and rant about uh, global powers and uh, European responsibility and all that. But I also think that as Lebanese, as a region, we also have a big responsibility and a big way to go in terms of improving our policies, our rhetoric, Um, I think that's a great point, and I think that's a good question to end on that I'd like to ask the panel. So when we focus on states, obviously, especially in light of recent election developments, things can seem rather grim. But I'd like to ask the panel, in what ways can people on the ground contribute to this effort to assist refugees who are fleeing their countries in search of safer places to live, whether that be advocating for a government, trying to find groups that are supporting refugees locally that you know about, or... It's the little things that count. I mean, it's it's trivial and it seems self-evident, but a very small number of actions in combination make huge differences. And in that sense, I think there's almost no limit to what you can do to help. I mean, you can support a local refugee action groups, you can get involved politically. And that's especially important right now, because if because there's a very strong divide. So on the one hand, the 16 to 25-year-olds are the ones that have the least anxiety about migration and about globalization. And on the other hand, they were also one of the less involved segments of society in recent elections, both in terms of Brexit and when it came to Trump. And if you care about these things, then get politically involved, vote for people who are going to make changes that you think are right. Don't give your vote to the populists by default by not going to the polls and... That's the one thing I would recommend and get involved. I mean, refugee groups in Europe are trying to integrate the people who are coming, trying to help them to get along in the country and language and everything. There's a lot of very small things that you can do and that don't get much coverage that are immensely important. 
one thing that's being done in Germany, for example, as Dean and I discovered last week, is refugeeswelcome.net, which has been established essentially by, by people, ordinary people who came together to establish a portal for essentially putting refugees in touch with employers and also another site which puts them in touch with social housing and has its own proprietary financing system. And this has all been done by people who essentially did computer science or some of them were medics and they decided to come together to essentially find a better way of doing what supposedly the government is supposed to be doing, but maybe lacks capacity to or is very slow at doing. So in a lot of ways, we can use some of the tools that we already have, as particularly as students with access to some of these networks of, of computer scientists, programmers, um, social scientists who can all come together and, and do pretty amazing things if we put our efforts into it. I mean, every little initiative counts at the moment. And for us in the region, I mean, we'll keep on fighting any racist public rhetoric that uh, comes out. Uh, we'll keep on supporting small initiatives in the hope that in the bigger picture, it will lessen or alleviate the struggle of Syrian refugees. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Declarations. We'd love to hear any thoughts and feedback you have about this episode. Tweet us at DeclarationsPod on Twitter and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast. And for those of you who have been following us since the beginning, thank you so much for tuning in again. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, we have a few episodes we've released over the past few months you can go back and listen to at any time on iTunes. So be sure to listen to our latest discussions on human rights as we release them every Monday. As always, thank you for tuning in to Declarations. Thank you.